It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have Many of your burning questions answered here. My next guest writes words that make me want to stand up and shout, yes. So much about her journey resonates with me. She is a U.S. domestic adoptee born in Chicago during the baby scoop era and raised on a farm in central Illinois. Her name is Hannah Andrews. After semi-retiring and moving to San Diego, California, she started writing again, a lifelong love, but definitely not about adoption. Hannah mostly ignored all things adoption until 2018, when she met a birth mother and an author at a writer's conference in San Diego. Everything changed in that moment. Hannah began searching and found that not only had she moved at one time within two blocks of her birth mom in Venice Beach, California, but that her biological mother had died a decade earlier, two months before Illinois changed its original birth certificate law, though she didn't know the law had even changed until years later. She also began reading and consuming all things related to adoption, especially adoptee and first mother authored memoirs. Now it's all she writes and attends Cub Concern United Birth Parents and AKA adoptee support groups and serve on the board of Adoption Knowledge Affiliates as well. Allow me to introduce you to an adoptee who started out in life at the same hospital as me in Chicago. We both had at one time been to the Salvation Army Booth Memorial Hospital decades ago, a place where pregnant teenagers were sent away because of the shame and secrecy of unwed pregnancy during that time. Today, Hannah shares so much with us about her adoption journey in this episode through her powerful essays. I think you'll find not only her words, but her audio storytelling is one of the best ways to express our joy and pain. Hannah, I am like so happy to have this conversation with you. And let me just start with how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Oh my goodness. Not more than me because (laughs) so much in your journey resonates with mine. And and I guess I'm going to start with We were both born in Chicago on the north side at the Salvation Army Booth Memorial Hospital. I was there probably four years before you. But when I learned that in your your story, I, I just got like chills because what I've come to learn about that place, because I did visit it, um, it's just impacted me from the very first time that I saw it on my birth certificate and I understand that's when you would learn 
that you were born there too. It is. I never knew that I came from a home for unwed mothers. And I had heard of those places, of course, but it was just like this little nugget in, you know, in the history of America. I didn't realize that I had been born at one. My brother, my eldest brother, who's also adopted, we're not biologically related, was born at Crittenden in Peoria. And our adoptive mother had said something like, I don't think they treated women very well at those places. So I just always had this idea that they were just these kind of mm, not so nice places that it existed in history, but they were gone by the time I was born nine years later, right. except of course they weren't, they weren't gone. And when I finally got my original birth certificate, it said S.A. Booth Memorial Hospital. Now my amended birth certificate just said hospital and county Right. It's it's sort of all on the same line almost um, where the blank is. And it just said Cook. So I had always thought that I was born at Cook County Hospital, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. I was just born in Cook County and they left the hospital name off of of my amended birth certificate. So it was it was a big shock to me. And I had just I had just started my journey and met a birth mother and decided that I needed to search and had read the girls that went away. So, I mean, I was just like, Oh no, like that's my story too. Like it was just, it was not the nicest thing to find out about yourself. Right. Yeah. And Fessler's book was one of the first ones I read um, over a decade ago. And I, it it just moved me. I was just kind of undone. And it was like, I had to go to see this place. And I remember walking in and, and asking for a tour because now it's um, like the Midwest headquarters for Salvation Army and just going to the different, like the chapel, the different rooms, the delivery, what once was the delivery room, the rooms that the girls stayed in and the cafeteria, all these areas pretty much look like the 60s. I mean, the fixtures are, are the same. I think they, you know, there's fresh paint maybe, but in the chapel did put in chairs. It used to be stationary pews, I think, at one time, but very minor changes. And these spaces, I almost felt like I was catapulted back to the time when my birth mother was there. You were there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like, did it feel almost like an eerie familiar? It was. And, you know, someone once said to me, you were here before. And I was like, I sure was. Like, that wasn't my first time there, even though I don't remember, I don't recall, right? Yeah. So you would learn that Illinois changed its adoption law and you would be given the right. <laughs> like, it feels so weird to say, you know, we are, are given the right to request our original birth certificate, but you would do that. And so when you got it, what did what did you feel? Well... First, I felt very silly for not even realizing that the law had changed. I felt because I <laughs> I watched that documentary, A Simple Piece of Paper, mm-hmm. and I was like, they showed all of these people like lined up going, like getting in line to go. get. I'm like, how did I not know this was going on? I didn't live in Illinois anymore, but I do own a commercial property there. So I pay Illinois taxes. They certainly know how to find me. So I felt (laughs) 
<laughs> I felt a little bit like they should have told me, Illinois should have called me. Right. And also that I should have just known. So once I got over feeling dumb, I was just like, I knew there was paperwork locked away. I always knew that I had files locked away. My mother used to say like, well, let's see if we can get some more information about you. Let's write the state because maybe they'll unseal your file. But I didn't realize, I don't think I ever truly realized it was a literal birth certificate with a name on it and my mother's name. And like, I just, I had never really grasped the concept of what it was that was locked away until I opened that piece of paper and it said, Shannon Pedroza. And I was like, who the heck is Shannon Pedroza? (laughs) Because that was not my name. I never knew I had a name before I had this name, Mm, you know, like, like that's what it really opened up. I'm like, I had another name. I was somebody else. Right. Like I had a beginning. I had a prologue. I had like, my story didn't just start with the day we brought you home there was like a whole beginning before that. And that just, I don't know. I was like this crazy mix of devastated and giddy and like everything, like all at once. Steve Martin in the jerk where he's like, look, I'm in the phone book. I am somebody. And then like, doesn't a truck hit him or something or like somebody shooting, like something ridiculous happens afterwards. It's like this, like, wow, look, here I am. And then boom, because it was, I was so happy and so devastated. Yeah. And I, I had her name too. Yeah, I didn't, It did, I couldn't grasp that there was an original birth certificate at first. I remember starting my search around 2010 and calling Midwest downstate Illinois and, and being told, What's the big deal? They're getting ready to change the law. And then you can get your original birth certificate. Because I was just trying to find out the adoption agency because I figured they had all my paperwork, right? And then thinking original birth certificate. <laughs> like, like all of it was, I, it wasn't registering for me. But fortunately, I was kind of paying more attention to this new law that was about to take place and getting involved with advocates that have been working on changing the legislation. And back to that movie, Gene Strauss is a simple piece of paper. It would be... You were in that. <laughs> yes, I, I yeah, was honored to be a part of that project. I thought she did an amazing job. Most of the people in that film were like working together to see things change. So we were becoming more aware. In other words, at that time, I was grasping the idea of what this really meant, this original document. And and I, too, would learn my name at birth. Although I was aware of this name growing up because, you know, I know I read it in your book. Wow, that is. So that was pretty special. Yeah, to say, oh, that at least this was the truth, you know, in my beginnings. But let's get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) One day you're going to have to just call me and like talk to me for like three hours because I find your story so fascinating too. Well, it's so much that resonates in your journey. And and like I was telling you earlier, it's like we were supposed to meet. Like I feel that in my body that we were supposed to meet. And when I read 
Cue the Sun that you published in Severance um, last year, 2022, I, it brought me to tears as, as I was reading it because so many things that you said, I felt that. One of the lines you said is, we adoptees knew only what our new parents told us. Something yeah. about that did something to me. And there's so many lines. Why can I now have my real record of birth but other adoptees can't. That does something to me too. Like when I think yeah. I have so many friends who are born in California and, and Texas and Florida and Georgia, and it does something to me. Of course, I'm glad I, I have my original birth certificate, but other adoptees don't. Yeah. Doesn't that make you feel some sort of way? It like, does. Uh, like it's not, it's not fair. Like, and, and I still want mine. It's like, <laughs> right, right. But I want you to have yours, too. And like, why can't like mm, it's like such a like you almost don't want to be happy about it because because we don't all have it. We don't. So we all can have it. We none of us have it, you know. And so that piece that you wrote just put words to what I feel um, often and think about. And so you're a writer, an amazing writer. And you're going to read pieces today that I'm so excited for the audience to get to hear. So thank you for that. And I don't know if you want to read now or you want to share a part of your story. Which, what um, do you want to do? <laughs> you know what? I will. I'll read Cue the Sun first. I've got to bring it up on my monitor here. Okay. But I'll read Cue the Sun first. Sometimes stories better told in other stories. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And you did it so well. It's so beautifully done. And I think there's magic in being transparent and vulnerable. And I think that you did that. Like you, you just were honest with what you were feeling at times in that, in that essay. So whenever you're ready. Okay. Cue the sun. My glasses weren't rose colored but they were the wrong prescription. I see adoption more clearly now and in previously overlooked places, often hiding in plain sight. I recently watched The Truman Show, a 1998 film lauded for its artsy take on free will, privacy, and our perception of reality. It both predicted and parodied the reality TV explosion. It was also a subtle, if unintentional, jab at the closed adoption system. The lead character, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, is an adoptee. Truman was chosen pre-birth from a pool of unplanned pregnancies and legally adopted by a TV corporation, the TV studio. His entire life was fabricated and filmed, fake parents, a fake town, and a fake world that is actually an enormous domed production studio. As cracks work their way into the facade, Truman true man begins to question and the quest for truth ensues you see it right chosen adopted fabricated search for truth yeah i missed all of that for over two decades in my defense adoption was not the focus of the movie i suspect it was just a handy plot device adoption so often is but that's another essay maybe the writer was typing up the tale and thought How can I make this character have zero clue about his real identity his entire life? Oh, I'll make him adopted. The audience doesn't learn of the adoption until well into the film. It's a catch-all explanation. 
Like Truman, I'm an adoptee. Mine was never a secret, but other truths eluded me. And I was mostly okay with that. I've always known I was adopted, but I never wanted to search. That was my mantra, repeated with an eye roll for nearly 50 years. Mostly, I just wanted control of the narrative. Long before DNA tests were a thing, people, friends, relatives, random strangers, constantly questioned my lack of search, my ethnicity, and sometimes even my lack of questions. I accepted my false reality. The identity quest wasn't for me, but if other adoptees felt the need to search, I didn't criticize, at least not out loud. Unless you count my older brother, who found his family of origin when we were in our 20s. His green eyes sparkled as he described meeting his biological sister and how she looked like him. Can you imagine, he gushed. I seethed. Imagine was all I ever could do. I'm your sister, not her, I hissed, and watched him deflate. I cringe at the memory. I'd grown up with two older brothers, also adopted, related by paper and proximity, but not blood. We were the living, breathing products of the baby scoop era, that not-so-sweet spot between World War II and Roe, when upwards of 1.5 million unwed women, some still girls, were secretly shipped off to maternity homes, coerced, shamed, and sometimes even forced by their families and society to surrender their babies to strangers that deserved them. Original birth certificates, OBCs, were sealed. New records erased maternity hospitals replaced the names of birth parents with the names of adoptive parents, as if we'd been born to them, as if our original mothers and our original names had never existed. The secrecy was all-encompassing. Birth mothers rarely knew where their babies ended up, and adoptive families often knew little of their children's origins. We adoptees knew only what our parents told us. Some weren't even told of their adoption. Others were told, too young and loved you so much she gave you away stories, equating supreme love with abandonment. Some of us internalized that message. I did. Adoption didn't guarantee a better life, just a different one. And mine was pretty decent. My new brothers and I clung tightly to each other in our invented family. Our parents were loving and kind. They encouraged questions and conversations, but we three generally opted out of both. I imagine our parents sighed secret relief and told themselves all was well. The thing is, we didn't even speak to each other about it. Toddler through teen, I cannot recall one sibling chat about adoption. No one told us not to speak of it, yet we'd somehow internalized that message. Maybe we digested the poison directed at our first mothers. Had their maternity home sprinkled shame salt on their dinners? Perhaps we were afraid to rock the boat of losing another home. In any case, not a word until my brother's real sister materialized. I hadn't even known he was searching. My anger at his perceived betrayal was another consequence of secrets and severance. I caught snippets of similar reunions a few years earlier. Birth mothers and adoptees had begun speaking out by my teen years, the 1980s, but I ignored them. I changed the channel when Donahue and subsequent shows dared speak of adoption or worse, reunion. If Donahue and Oprah couldn't win me over, my brother didn't stand a chance. Yeah, I see the parallel now, as if the world was trying to clue me in. The same way random people would sneak onto the set, the set within the storyline, not the actual movie set, of the Truman Show. Characters that scream, Truman, you're on TV, were whisked away by plain closed security. My brain had its own built-in security force. 
ready to deflect all things adoption. Like Truman, though, I finally wised up. Spoiler alert for a 25-year-old movie. Truman defies this unreal reality and sneaks away. The TV producer, enraged, screams, Cue the sun! Not to show Truman the way, as the metaphor would suggest, but to find and capture him. Truman eludes everyone and sails off through a massive storm to the end of the world. But since his world is a TV studio, he crashes into a literal wall. Deflated but not defeated, he wanders about until he finds the exit, smirks at the camera, takes a final bow, and leaves. In 2018, I smashed into my own sunset. A writer's convention I almost skipped and a snippet of story read by a 1960s era birth mother. I couldn't change the channel. I didn't turn out. She was a beacon. I listened, then furiously began searching for everything I had ignored, including my own beginnings. I wanted every answer to every question I ever buried inside myself. After a lifetime of avoiding the truth, it's all I crave. I have some new questions too, like, why should I have to search for my own information? And why are our birth certificates sealed and falsified with new ones? Why, why can I now have my real record of birth, but other adoptees can't? Why are adoptees still at the mercy of archaic laws that erase our identities? How is this legal? How is this still a thing? I don't know the answers. What I do know is maternal child separation is undeniably traumatic. NICU units have these special incubators with little holes for parents to safely touch their preemie babies. I call them mommy sleeves. The babies have just spent nine months hearing their mothers' voices, sharing nutrients. Infants recognize their mothers. I wasn't a preemie, but I'd have benefited from a mommy sleeve. Instead, I got a heaping dose of preverbal trauma. Identity erasure compounded that trauma. The state legally disappeared me, then created a whole new identity and origin in the form of a new official fake birth certificate. More than 50 years later, this is still the norm, not the exception. Open adoption is more theory than practice and is not legally enforceable. Searching, which was my decision, both broke and healed me. It was rife with rabbit holes and red herrings and led to painful discoveries. My biological mother died three months before Illinois changed its OBC access law. It was another decade before I knew the law changed and before I searched. And that fact still stings. I also found out she looked for me, which brings both comfort and pain. Worse, for a time, we unknowingly lived exactly two blocks from each other. This haunts me every day. I met my half-brother and my mother's longtime best friend. They're wonderful. Despite numerous DNA tests and partial records, my birth father remains a mystery. My eternal biological grandmother will not speak of or to me. My adoptive parents are deceased. So I can't even tell them that I finally found some answers, that I finally asked some questions, and that I finally have some peace. I wish I'd looked years earlier when both of my mothers were still living. I longed to visit the parallel universe where my birth mother never had to surrender me, or maybe one where I met her during my teens or 20s. I love the family in which I was dropped. Fate dealt me a better hand than many adoptees. Still, I long for all the scenes that adoption deleted from my life's movie. The songs erased from my playlist. Most of all, I wish if adoption had to be, that at least my identity hadn't been stolen. I believe in every human's right to their identity. Adoptees are the only Americans legally denied their original records of birth in the United States. I believe this information should be ours from breath one.
and restricting access is developmentally harmful. And at the very least, we should have unfettered access to the entirety of our birth and medical records as adults. This is available for adoptees in only 11 states. I also understand that as difficult as it was for me to obtain information, it is more complex, sometimes impossible for others, especially transnational adoptees. I respect that some adoptees have zero interest in their origins. Were records readily available, that percentage might change. There are many things wrong with adoption, but the loss of identity is one of the most glaring and most overlooked. Identity is a basic human right. Don't make us beg for it. Don't make us hide in the dark searching for ourselves. Cue the sun. Wow. I just love it. And hearing you read it, you read that so beautifully. Highs and lows, of course, throughout. And I just picture a room full of adoptees, like maybe 3,000, we'll say. And everybody's standing up when you finish, standing up and clapping. I'm so glad you wrote that. Oh, thank you. You know what's really great about what you just said is that I literally can picture a room full of 3,000 adoptees (laughs) now. And I don't think growing up, like I mean, and I knew a handful, (laughs) but like... I couldn't imagine 3,000 adoptees all in one place. Like, like, yeah. and now I'm like part of the community and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'll get on a Zoom with other adoptees and I'll just look at all the little like, you know, it's like a little <laughs> Brady bunch of adoptees. I'm like, look at all these adoptees. Like, I know. And through the years I've met so many. So I can picture 3,000 and I see them giving you a standing ovation. I think so much resonates for me with with that piece and I'm sure for many others. So I just thank you for reading it today. Thank you. And so we met through Adoptee Voices, the writing group created by Sarah Easterly. And I understand you've been in three cohorts. And we're wrapping up the ninth cohort right now. And so I'm so glad that you joined because I don't know if I would have met you otherwise, maybe not this soon anyway, because you're in California. I want to let everybody know she's on the West Coast. I love the West Coast. It's the best coast, someone told me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I want you to share wherever you want to start with anything else you want to add to what you've experienced as an adoptee? Well, let's see. Well, sort of like Cue the Sun says, I, um, you know, I had, I had really great adoptive parents. I was very fortunate that way. And I always, I, I did always appreciate that that was a coin toss. I always knew that was a coin toss, that I, that I lucked into these parents. Mm-hmm. And I don't really like to use the word grateful, but I was always very grateful to have had such a wonderful family. However, I also I also knew that I was chosen because, and you know, that is a story we're so often told, except here's the thing I really was. But here's how that story played out for me. My parents had adopted my two older brothers at this point, non-biologically related. They adopted my eldest brother. And a couple years later, they got my middle brother. And then they were on a waiting list because They wanted a third. They wanted a girl. And my parents were school teachers. They didn't have a lot of money. And so they they sat and sort of languished on that list. And one day they got a call and they said, we have a little girl here. She's about a year old. She's got 
black hair and brown eyes. Do you want this baby? Actually, what they said was, so talk to your husband and call us back because it was 1969. And my mother said, I don't need to talk to my husband. We want that baby. We'll be there this weekend. (laughs) So she, of course, like, of course, talk to my father. We have our little girl. Then they were about to like go to, because they lived in uh, Northern Illinois at the time. So it was about an hour and a half away. It was like a Friday and they were going to go on Saturday. The agent called back and she said, we have another little girl here and she's only six weeks old. She also has black hair and brown eyes. And my mother said, oh, we will take them both. Mm. <laughs> and the woman said, no, 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 no. There are other families waiting. <laughs> oh, you cannot have both. That's interesting. But you get first choice because right. you've been waiting a long time. So you get to choose. So like I always picture because she's told me this story a thousand times. In mm-hmm. fact, she even wrote me a book when I was 10 years old called Your Story. And this is how my story always began for me, right? Because there was no backstory, no prologue to me. This is how my story began. And she said, well, if we can only have one, we'll take the baby. And that was me. I was the baby. I had just appeared out of nowhere, right? (laughs) Like they were set to get another little girl. And then I just popped in and I literally just like stole that little girl's face. So I always honestly felt a little, I remember as a little girl, including that little girl in my prayers Mm. and God bless that other little girl. And I hope she got a good home too, because I felt like, oh, I took something away from her. So even though my mother told me this to like ensure, like, just so you know, you were wanted, we chose you. I mean, we chose you because you were younger. We didn't see you and pick you out of like a lineup or anything, but we chose you. But just even that story kind of left me with this like weird, oh gosh, did some other girl get a worse life than me because I took her spot. So I don't know that there's a perfect way to tell this story. Except just maybe let's just tell the truth, mm-hmm. you know, let's just tell parents the truth. And then the parents can tell the adopted children the truth. Like yeah. you came from a place of loss for us because we could not have children and we wanted children. And there was loss for your birth mother because she was young and because society at the time said you can't raise a baby. This is how your story started. And maybe that's not the perfect start to a story, but that's the real story. You know, there's so much, there's so many layers. And as you grow, we'll try to let you know all the layers so that you don't sit and internalize these things, you know? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I, I just buried everything, basically. I was a pretty good kid. I was like the good adoptee for many years. I'm sure it drove my older brothers crazy because I won lots of awards and I played the piano and won speech contests and did all sorts of great things. And then when I was 15, like everything crashed. I got an eating disorder that I always blamed on my friend, Missy's mother, because (laughs) she said to me one day as we were like looking at Tiger Beat magazine or whatever we did back in 1984. She said, oh, yeah, looking a little chunky, but maybe you're getting ready to grow or something. You know, just like something silly and passing that like a mother shouldn't have said but did. And I took that to heart and I stopped eating. And like I was the first person in my town to have an eating disorder. So I guess even in that way, I was sort of being like, look at me. (laughs) 
Right. Look at me doing something different than everyone. Fortunately, I was never into drugs. I never drank a ton, although I did go through some drinking phases. But I just spent a lot of years kind of lost. I still, you know, I went to college and then quit college. And I worked and I was responsible and paid my bills. But I was just always a little lost. And it never occurred to me that it had anything to do with adoption. In fact, when I was 16 or 17, and I was actually in an adolescent care psych unit in in a hospital down in Springfield because of my eating disorder. I remember one time at the family therapy, my father said to the psychiatrist, psychiatrist, as in a medical degree, in charge of all these kids, he said, do you think any of this could have to do with the fact that she was adopted? And that psychiatrist said, you know, it was like he was, I can still picture it in my head. And it's like he was like ticking off boxes almost on his little, you know, his little thing. You no, know, like because my parents were educated. My father had a master's degree. They were teachers. They were good people. There was no abuse. And he just like kind of looked down at his notes and like, mm, nope, nope, you're good parents. There was no abuse. There's nothing. Nope, nope. Adoption didn't have anything to do with it. And I remembered that. So that would be in the and, 70s or 80s? No, it was the 80s. 80s okay. Yeah, it would have been about 1985 or 6 okay. by then. You know, and I think my parents knew that at least it had a little bit to do with something. I mean, I was their third adoptee by this point. Like, sure. You know, <laughs> they figured some things out. But, you know, when a doctor tells you that, you just... He's the expert. Even in the 80s, yeah. you just, you know, he's the expert. Right. You know, he went to medical school. So, I mean, and... and Overall, my life was okay. I fared much better than many adoptees, you know, but there was definitely some trauma Mm -hmm. that went unresolved in my life that I didn't figure out until many, many years later. And then it hit me like, wow, this had to do with adoption. This had to do with relinquishment. I should say relinquishment over adoption because my adoption was very good. But the relinquishment is still a loss. You know, I was still you know, to put it bluntly, like pulled away from my mother, wiped clean and sent away, you know, like she never saw me. She never held me. I feel like I appeared in the world looking for that voice, looking for that smell, like looking for everything that I had known for those nine months I I was inside her and it was just gone. So I feel like that was that was traumatic. Sure I, was. I don't know how yeah. it couldn't be. You know? Yeah, I think I think we're finally, many professionals are finally saying, yes, that was a trauma. And it's Sunderland. And he says he doesn't want to say adoption without saying relinquishment. They go together when you talk about adoptees, relinquishment and adoption. So we clear, because I had a good adoption. I would say there was no abuse and no neglect, you know. I, I received a really good education. My parents wanted the very best for me. I think they did everything to provide that to me, but I was still relinquished, you know. So, yeah, yeah. it's both. It's always both for the adoptee, in my opinion. So you go on to, at some point, discover, wait a minute, something, yeah, something happened Something's to me. <laughs> That is why people need to tell their stories, Mm -hmm. because if people weren't telling their stories, I would have never found my way to my story and not just to my story, but to figuring out like, oh, these are the little things that were 
were just a little off kilter in my life that led to other things. Like this is how the dominoes got set up Mm -hmm. and then fell down in a certain order because of it. It's like semi-retired. I moved out to San Diego. I started writing again because that had been my lifelong love. Like I always loved writing, but I don't like rejection. And (laughs) I, I was like, no, I'm going to find something responsible that I can pay my bills with. And then one day I'll go back to writing. So I was about 49 and I'm like, I'm going to start writing again. I started taking some classes. San Diego has a really great writing community. And I had taken a couple of classes and I was at this like writer's convention and they had like little, it was almost like a smorgasbord, but they had like little snippets. Like you could take a little class in memoir and you could take a little class in historical fiction and so on and so forth. And that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to write historical fiction. And I was actually obsessed with the story of my great-grandmother, my adoptive great-grandmother, of course, who had died at the age of 23, taking poison to hasten her cycle. She was, she and her husband had three children and she had gotten pregnant again and she had taken this poison that was supposed to take care of it because Mm. of course this was long before Roe v. Wade it was 1924 I believe it was and she died Mm. and she died leaving three young children behind including my grandfather so my grandfather remarried almost immediately that woman had like six more children for him but that woman is who I'm actually named after she became the the mother to my grandfather and the the grandmother to my father. And I, I was named after her. I was named after a replacement, which kind of hit me after I started doing all the adoption stuff too. And it also hit me that I was like researching this story about women and choice. And that was a story that had always been told in my family as a, and not even as like, this woman was evil. She did a bad thing. It wasn't told that way. It was like, this woman didn't have choices and she didn't have money and she made a terrible mistake and it cost her her life. This is what happens when women don't have choices. Mm. So I was working on that. And then I stumbled into this whole adoption thing, which I always found like so ironic after the fact. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll take this little snippet in memoir. Like I'll, I'll go see what this memoir thing is about, even though that's not my thing. Maybe I can redo this historical fiction story into a sort of like fictional memoir. I don't know. But I had seen the memoir teacher like walking around. It's, it's almost like a little campus where they have this, this writing school. And I'd seen her walking around before and she just wears like like all these flowy clothes and she has this long black hair and she's like, she just looks magical. I'm like, I'm going to take her class. So I walk in and she immediately hands the reins over to this other woman. And she said, this year, our, our showcase was about your deepest, darkest secrets. And I want you to tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. And this is the woman that won this, one of the showcase pieces. I had just moved there from Las Vegas, right? So I'm like, okay, secrets, whatever. I'm from <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> and she's like, you know, this like very pretty, very like, you know, just looks like your mom's friend. You know, like what kind of secrets could she have? And she says, they told me I would forget it ever happened but I didn't and I was like whoa 
what's this about? And then she goes on to say that she was a birth mother during the 60s and that she had to go to an unwed mother's home and give up her child. And then she found him 50 years later. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Like, I didn't know, you know, I I had seen some birth mothers on Donahue and stuff, but I just ignored them. So I'd never seen a first mother in the flesh. And she was talking and she had found her son. And I was just like, and like everything spun up, like the whole world spun around me. I was like, what is going on? This is, I, I, I have to go. I have to get out of this room and I have to go find my mom. Like right now, I must go find my birth mother. So after she finished talking and she, her book wasn't out, I didn't even like stay and talk to her afterwards. Like, I remember like feeling like I couldn't even make eye contact with her. It was just like, oh my gosh, like it was so overwhelming. So I went and I had a little lunch in the little quad and I sat and I Googled 60s birth mothers adoption. Like it just, you know, throwing search terms in and that book, the girls that went away came up. And I started reading it right there. And I was just like, I have to leave this place eventually and go home. So I ordered the the audiobook. So I started listening to it. And I'm listening to it in my car. It's like a 45-minute drive to my house. And, like, their stories are just, like, echoing around me. It was like, I don't know. It was like I was in the middle of a movie. And it you was just... hadn't yet, I'm sorry, but you hadn't yet discovered that you were born that, nope. your, that your birth mother had went away, that you were born at a salvation booth, right? Correct. Yeah. I, I went home. Oddly enough, there's like all these weird little, like little magical moments. My mother, my adoptive mother had died just about a year and a half before that. And before she died, I moved her out to California and I was taking care of her. And one day she needed, she'd been a teacher and she needed some form from the state of Illinois for something. So I got on Illinois.gov in 2017. And that's actually when I saw Illinois is releasing their OBC. And I just thought, huh, that's weird. I should get one of those. And I had clicked it and printed it out. But, you know, I was taking care of my mother. There was a lot of things going on. And I just put it in a drawer and I'd kind of forgotten about it. And that whole drive home, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I have that form somewhere. I need to send that in. I got to get my birth certificate. So I came home. It was still sitting in the same drawer that I put it in a year before. I sent that in. And when it came a few months later, that's when that's when I saw S.A. Booth Memorial Home. I saw my name and my mother's name. And I'd also actually done a DNA test. It's like I would do things and then kind of forget about it. <laughs> um, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was just like, the, like the little adoptee in me was like poking at my brain saying, no, get this book, read that book. I'd actually read a book that I, that was about adoption. It was about, it was a fictionalized book called Before We Were Yours. And it was about Georgia Tan and that scandal. And it, it was like historical fiction. And I'd read that, but I didn't even, it didn't even hit me how much about adoption it was. I thought it was a book about sisters. In fact, I'd sent it to one of my mother's sisters because like, it's this beautiful story about this sisterly bond. And my, my adoptive mom had three sisters and they were very close. It like things went over my head, right. That mm -hmm. were like screaming adoption. And I was like, what? Right, nah, right. this is about sisters. 
I found my mom's name. I found my name and I started looking up S.A. Booth and I found a woman that actually for a while had this really nice search service. I mean, it was more of a, a registry than a service. You could register. It was called um, an adopted booth baby dot com. But it's it's no longer in existence. I, I'm not sure what happened if she just decided to shut it down. But she had given up a baby from Booth Memorial in Chicago found her daughter many years later and so she put up this registry for other people and so I I wrote her an email and I said is there anything you can tell me about that place because I was there my mother was there and so she she wrote me a really nice email back she described it and she said you know they they were actually that she she was there in 1971, I believe. So just a couple of years after me. So I figured it was probably pretty similar, but she said, we didn't see our babies unless we did this. There was something they did in the chapel where they did sort of like a dedication, not a baptism, but like a dedication where they sort of said like, I hope you have a beautiful life and I dedicate your life to beauty and joy. I don't know. something." She said she didn't do it because it just seemed really painful and really so she didn't but she knew a couple young women that had done that but I always assumed my mom probably didn't do that I don't know why I just assumed she didn't but that was the only time they would see their babies if they did this dedication ceremony in the chapel and she's the one that told me well when it was time to have our babies we just kind of like waddled next door because the hospital was attached and that never left me like her saying that I thought that is the loneliest thing I've ever heard yeah to just walk down this hallway I never heard alone, that thank you have for a sharing that yeah I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that so and I don't know if if everyone did that or if that was just her story or but it just that just blew my mind I have never that sentence stayed with me the same way Laura said they told me I'd forget it ever happened but it didn't. I, I never yeah. forgot it. You know, certain things just stay with you. And I just thought, oh, I picture like my 15 year old, 16 by the time she had me birth mom, just just waddling over there all by herself, probably terrified. Yeah, my birth mom was 17 when she gave birth. And I would learn the things that you would learn that she my mother, birth mother never wanted to relinquish me. And I think she grieved, uh, grieved it all her life. She passed on her 49th birthday and the things I would learn are which is heartbreaking about being expected to forget something like that and and I don't know what month you were born in but I was born in May and like Mother's Day would be like Mm. just right around the corner and I've really been sitting with that lately um how hard you know emotionally hard that must have just been yeah I think that's the main thing I I'm really glad that my story came to me by way of, of Laura, the birth mother, and then that book, The Girls Who Went Away, and, and going that path because it really it gave me so much empathy. I, I never hated my biological mother, but there was always that, like, how could you throw me away? How could you? Do-? I never really put myself in her shoes. Like, it just so many things had never occurred to me. Like I always thought she forgot me. Like it never even crossed my mind that she would have been looking for me in the eighties. Her, her friend told me that, you know, and I thought I was so, (laughs) 
I thought I was so educated and aware of women and women's rights. And, and, and I knew certain things were, were legal and not legal in 1969, but I just didn't really see the scope of just how you just couldn't be a single mother. You just couldn't. Like, that was not a thing for most women. It was just not just frowned upon, just sort of, it was just not an option. So if, if your only choice is adoption, well, that's not really a choice. Mm. Like, you can't have one option and call it a choice. Right. That's just, it's just what it is then, you know? So I didn't realize that, like, I knew there was a stigma, but so much had changed by the time I was 15, 16 years old, you know, like that, it was just a whole different world. And not just because of, not just because of Roe v. Wade, but because women, you know, you didn't, they didn't kick you out of school anymore. Like you didn't get kicked out of college for getting pregnant. The divorce rate, you know, women, women got divorced. And so there were single mothers from divorce and there were, you know, there was birth control was legal for single women, not just married women. Like there were just so many changes in that time period that I just couldn't grasp how little choice women had back then that, that they couldn't just say, no, I'm going to keep my baby and I'll figure out, I'll get a job and figure out how to make it work. Like you just couldn't do that then. You yeah, know, they, they, there was just a lack of support for, for yeah. these birth moms in the, within the family and within society at large in general. I appreciate you sharing all of that because I, I agree with that. And I know with Adoptive Voices, you're preparing to publish in the e-zine one of your pieces. Yes, I sent one in that is sort of, I guess it's sort of speculative nonfiction. <laughs> I got really obsessed with all the what ifs. Yeah. So I write a lot of what ifs now, which Patrick McMahon, who you've had on your show and is an old friend of yours yeah. and also Chicago adoptee. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. He runs the cub group out here, which was the first support group I ever went to. So that was sort of like a little magical thing too, that I went to this support group that ended up being run by somebody that was also born in Chicago. Oh, and, I'm crazy uh, about Patrick. He's, and he's such yeah, a great writer. So nice. Yeah. And have I, you read his yep, book? I have. Yeah. He's like, oh, I wrote a book. I'm like, I will buy that book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Becoming Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. I and I, I said to him once, I'm like, now I'm just so obsessed with all the what ifs, you know, like this and that. And he said, that's okay. Write all the what ifs. Mm -hmm. Just just write them down. And I so now I write all the what ifs. Well, so, I'm happy for you to read. I, I think yeah, I heard you read bad. this piece in one of the meetings. I just love Me it. Did. Yeah. So well done. So whenever My you're gosh. ready. What she left me when she left me. I've kept it safely tucked away like a treasured antique. You carried it with me always. And for over 50 years now, through ups and downs, through moves and marriages, it's just an old shoebox, really. But she wrapped it in what is now vintage paper cherubic cartoon infants and teddy bears building blocks she wrapped the bottom and the lid individually so it can be opened without unwrapping the top is festooned with hand-drawn bubble letters that spell out shannon the name she gifted me sight unseen inside exists the trove of treasures a baby blanket a few photos and a letter 
this is my inheritance, the entirety of all my birth mother left behind for me the day she left me behind. The blanket remains whisper soft. It was handmade in a basic crochet single stitch. She must have missed the stitch or maybe added a stitch because it's off kilter, almost trapezoidal, but I couldn't possibly love it more. I hug it tight to my chest and picture her. I imagine that brick building that called itself a home and its revolving cast of wayward souls. I smile as I watch them gather together in the evenings, watch Bonanza and laugh in and crochet the night away, wrists perched atop their swollen bellies. I envision a bushel-sized basket of yarn, likely donated by local church-going ladies, just tisking about idle hands being the devil's workshop. There are no baby showers, no balloons or bassinets. It's just my mother and the other melancholic misfits shuddered away from society, crafting blankets and booties for babies they'd never hold. She tucked an assortment of photos into the blanket like a secret bonus prize. They are faded now, color drained from time and tears. One is her solo in what must be a school photo. She's prim, proper, stunning. Mounds of dark hair piled atop her head, accented with a thin mod headband bow. In another, she's swollen and smiling, fat with impending me. It's our only photo together. A third is of the doomed couple, broad smiled before a watery backdrop. Me and your daddy, Lake Michigan, 1968, is printed on the back. Two more photos, both black and white, stern-faced, old-timey looking, even for the 60s, on which she's written, your dad's parents on one and my parents on the other. It's my life history in a handful of photos. It's a roadmap through the makers of me. And then my most prized possession of my most prized possessions, a letter neatly folded inside an envelope with hand-drawn hearts addressed to the name I lost when I lost her. Years have yellowed the single page. It's half printed, half cursive, as if she were writing to both little kid me and grown-up me, confused yet aware of the eternity of me. My heart, my mother to never be, drew hearts above every eye, existing in that in-between, no longer a girl, not quite a woman. The words unfurl like ribbon candy, hard, sweet, and timeless. Sweet Shannon, I wish you love and light and peace. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Try to understand. You deserve the best parents and a big house and all the things I want to give you but can't. Please know I love you so very much, more than the moon and the sum of all the stars in the sky. I will never forget you. I will hold you in my heart forever. And then, scribbled in teeny tiny letters, written up and down, repeated over and over along the four sides of the letter, like a high school secret. I wanted you. They took you. One day I will find you. These words are ingrained in my memory, but my memory is imaginary. It's filled with half-truths and wishful thinking. The box, its contents, none of it's real. It is both metaphorical and indestructible, fashioned from the salt of my tears, bound with longing and loss. It is only and always in my mind. It's a letter she never wrote me, or perhaps just never left for me, or maybe they just never passed it on to me. And look out, she doesn't write. Look out your window as you grow, forever know. The moon, those stars, I'm looking at them too. When you sleep, dream of me, and I will dream of you. And when you look at the mirror, smile at what you see. 
for that's me forever looking back at you. I cherish the words that never were, yet somehow were, invisibly inked inside me. I tuck my invisible photos inside my make-believe blanket and listen for the voice that once echoed all around me and wonder if that was the only thing that was ever real. And I treasure my phantom keepsakes, tucked in gently inside the box she never left me, but I'm forever destined to carry. That is so beautiful. That's in the twist. Because um, I did. I remember when you read it and I thought it was real. And it you... fools me every time. <laughs> and I wrote it. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. Phantom keepsakes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that piece. And so I definitely want to honor your time. And I just have a few more questions. And I think i like us to wrap up with okay. your last piece, but I just, just have a couple questions to ask you. And the first one is, what's been the most rewarding thing about being connected to the adoption community? It is just having a sense of community that I never had. I mean, I've had friends, I have a good family, but I just knowing that there's other adoptees with maybe a different story, but with so many similar, with like a common thread, I guess, that just get me. We just get each other, you know? Yeah. That's it. Just just all the adoptees. Just, wow. It's yeah. changed my world. Yeah, I liken it to belonging versus fitting in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is there anything that you found to be challenging? <sighs> well, my search didn't didn't turn out the way I wanted. And that, that has been challenging. Sometimes one answer would just leave, lead to 10 more questions. <laughs> yeah. For um, sure. yeah. You know, my mother, my mother was deceased. I did meet my half brother. He's very nice. And I did meet my mother's longtime best friend and she sent me pictures and told me stories and, you know, they, they spent their life together basically. So you know, I, I got a lot from her and, and she in fact gave me my mother's ashes. So that was amazing. You know, I missed her. Yeah. I never got to meet her. I'm sorry and that happened. Yeah. yeah. So that's, so that's sad, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't, for all the questions that it brought up and for, for all the pain that came with it, just knowing what I know now has made such, I would, I wouldn't go back. If I could go back, I would do it sooner. (laughs) But if uh, I I wouldn't not search, I would never not search. That's the only thing I could, if I could change something, I would just have searched sooner. So that that's been challenging that it wasn't, you know, I didn't like, and I still can't find my dad, you know, uh, and I've done, all the DNA tests. So it wasn't like I just spit in a tube and then here's all my magical answers or I got my birth certificate and got a bunch of, like nothing, nothing ended up magical. Right. <laughs> still a lot I of, thought it would be magical. Yeah. Still a lot of pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Missing pieces. Same here. Yeah. And then sometimes out of the blue, I'll get one more piece, you know, I know, and aren't you just like, oh, oh. Right, <laughs> it's right. like a kid in a candy store again, yes. Yeah, 
for sure. Well, if you're ready to read or when you're ready to read your final piece, I, sure. I would I would definitely appreciate that. And thank you so much for having, you know, this time with me and being able to share so much um with the audience today. So I really appreciate thank that. You. <laughs> This last piece is a little bit about um, about the obsession that comes with uh, learning that I had lived two blocks away from my birth mother for a while. I moved across the entire country to California, and I found out years later that I had lived exactly two blocks away from her. Y- years later, I put all those like random like little mishaps together and thought, oh, this is why. And I came up with this piece. It's called Tethered. Los Angeles was like a bad boyfriend. I had a years-long love-hate relationship with it, one to which I could never fully commit nor leave. I spent chunks in my late 20s and early 30s as a reluctant resident. That so-called city of angels had a devil's grip on me. It pushed and prodded and plied me with mishaps and misadventures, but I just couldn't quit that place. I get it now. I didn't imagine it, and I wasn't paranoid. There really were forces at work. Now I call it by its proper name, which I believe I coined the birth mother effect. Here's the spoiler, because I hate surprises. I'm the person that reads the East Coast Reddit boards of a TV series before it airs on my coast, or flips to the back of the book. I wish I could have seen how my movie turned out back then, but life doesn't work that way. I had no idea that when I moved to Los Angeles on a whim, I was a stone's throw away from my birth mother. Okay, maybe not a stone's throw, but close, exactly two blocks. I wouldn't know until almost two decades later, and my mother would never know. So the thing is, L.A. wasn't trying to tell me to leave. It was begging me to stay, telling me to open my eyes. Los Angeles was trying to be the best boyfriend, but I never gave it a chance. My fling with L.A. started out okay. I floated along, high-end couch surfing along the Pacific Coast Highway, unintentionally, but probably subconsciously winding my way south. I stayed with a buddy in Malibu for a spell, then moved in with a documentarian I was half-heartedly dating in the Palisades. He was a too sweet transplanted Minnesotan. I called Mixtape Mike because he constantly burned super cheesy CD mixes for me, really. When the music faded, I migrated in with my friend Katie in Venice Beach. Katie was this live lady redhead in her early 30s. She spent a number of years booking tours for rock bands two of the same bands that I'd later find out my birth mom dated members of. Katie had this sprawling three-bedroom she shared with this ridiculously gorgeous French actor, Emmanuel. It was like I was walking onto the set of Melrose Place. Big courtyard, bougainvillea, chill neighbors, and beautiful roommates. I've found my new home. Come to the beach with me, Emmanuel would coo. Not flirting, just being as beautiful. Why do I need a shirt self? He always wore these billowy genie pants that somehow looked amazing on him and fancy sandals. He saved shirts for auditions and restaurants. If he wasn't working, he was floating about the beach where strangers constantly stopped to take his photo, maybe paint his picture. It was so annoying. It was like hanging out with Jesus or young Fabio. I wish now, though, I'd have gone to that beach with him every single day. Cue pensive music here. Because my new abode was a whisper away from my birth mother, her son, and her bestie. Again, I had no idea, nor did she. But when I dig through my retrospective flip book of a brain, I can hone in on when things went haywire. 
it was 2002. Who knows what month, because there's no seasons there. But it was when I dropped anchor in Venice Beach. Chaos ensued. Or rather, just random flukes. Rental car mess-ups, apartment lockouts, a traffic accident at the safest intersection in La La Land, pickpockets, peculiarities. It was a years-long series of unfortunate events. None were life-altering, but they grew more and more frustrating. I declared each time the tipping point and headed back to the Midwest. I cursed the city. I'm done. It's over, as my plane departed. But within weeks, L.A. would call to me like a sexy surfer. Come on, babe. Just one more chance. And I'd run back, all giddy schoolgirl. Years later, the unexplainable finally made sense. I found my birth mother, Candy, or rather the story of her, in 2020. I met her son, my half-brother, who told me she'd lived in Venice Beach since the early 70s. He had been born and raised there. And it was there, in 2007, that Candy died. In 2008, I left Venice and never returned. And the minute that he said Venice Beach, it was if an ice-cold wave pummeled me. It was her, my brain screamed, and it hasn't shut up since. I tried to ignore it, but even circumstantial evidence can be overwhelming. It was candy. It was always her. It was the birth mother effect. It's like a sort of genetic butterfly effect. And it was set in motion when I moved back into her orbit. I was caught up in the force of nature that brought this force of nature into the world. Both of us were born in Chicago and both of us eventually moved to LA. The why to all of it? We were tethered. I see her everywhere now, in every frame of my California movie. She exits as I enter that neighborhood diner I used to go to. She flirts with my hot fruit French roommate at the beach that I refuse to visit. She's at Trader Joe's the day I'm surreptitiously following Adam Sandler around the produce department. In fact, maybe while I'm following him, she's following me thinking, oh my God, could that be her? But then the universe would interfere every time. It'd hide my wallet or lock me out or mess up my rental car. Or maybe it was the opposite. Maybe the universe was trying to pull us together, but somehow we messed it up. Like how magnets on the same pole repel rather than attract. Maybe that's why my car's always acted up. We confused and confounded the electrical makeup of our very existence. We flirted too much with the parallels. I obsess about the times our paths may have crossed. There's a million what-ifs that haunt me. They play on an everlasting loop. And at the center, highlighted, is the California incline. I know now she had to have a hand in that. The California incline is this little slanted road in Santa Monica. It dumps Ocean Avenue into the Pacific Coast Highway, and presumably vice versa, though I never went up it, only down. One gloriously sunny day, a rock pinged my windshield, leaving behind an easy-to-buff-out hole. I said aloud to no one, well, at least my windshield didn't crack. And then, because the universe is always listening, and my life is a terrible sitcom, the crack scampered and spiderwebbed across my entire windshield. But if I rewind and pan out, I can see Candy clearly. Mere moments before, she's up on top of the California incline. She slips on a pebble. That little pebble makes its way down, bounces off the side of the cliff, and pings my windshield. It was nature trying to make us see. Mother Nature was screaming, Seriously? You've passed each other a thousand times. Come on. We were tethered. L.A. knew it, but we didn't. Venice Beach shouted it, but we couldn't hear it over all the background noise. So what if I could go back? 
What if I went to the beach, the diner, the grocery store, walked up and down Abbott Kinney Boulevard until we finally ran into each other? What if when that stupid rock hit my windshield, I stopped and turned around and drove back up the incline, unknowingly pulled the invisible string connecting us, tugged at the tether by seeking the origins of that dastardly pebble? And there she was, laughing with her bestie and my brother, or maybe just all alone reading A Wrinkle in Time. And I walked up and said, hey, lady, you just shattered my windshield with your stupid pebble. And then she said, holy cow, you got to be Shannon. And of course, I say, who the heck is Shannon, crazy lady? And I tell her my name, except it isn't even my name, because I never knew that Shannon was my real name, the name that she gave me. And she never knew the name that replaced it. And fate holds its breath, whispers into the breeze to each of us, to both of us, open your eyes. It's her. Fate crosses its fingers that this time we finally get it. Maybe Candy offers me a Marlboro light, sits me down, tells me a story, my story. Maybe the world slows its spin. Maybe everything changes with that moment. Maybe, just maybe, we move the needle enough to stave off the cancer waiting in her wings. Maybe she spends two or three more decades in the City of Angels instead of becoming one at 57. Maybe a million things happen because of that pebble I refuse to ignore. Because I finally went up the incline, not down. Because I finally opened my eyes, saw her, saw me, and saw that we had always been, would always be, tethered. You know, you, you are just, you are an amazing writer. That's, I just, oh, I, I so mean, much. I mean, I, I'm in awe of how you you write like that it's just just brilliant and um tethered is a perfect title thank you oh this has been a great time oh i don't want it to end <laughs> like i want to hear you read something else and, and another and another <laughs> like you you're really really talented and maybe you'll come back on i would love to yeah i wrote a little follow-up to like uh tethered last night during our, our prompt actually when she said if you could take one thing back to your beginning and I was like oh <laughs> yeah. so I wrote a little follow-up but I didn't go back to the beginning I went back to 2003 yeah, <laughs> yeah that's I'm... such fun in that class it's just so wonderful like hearing everybody's writing and how uh, I just love it it's such a good experience I it's it's beyond my my wildest dreams when I signed on to co-facilitate, I had no way of knowing, you know, how good it would be for me. Yeah, and I think everybody benefits from being there. Yes. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not just writing. It's just really, it's community, you yes, know? It's, it's just community. There's just something so wonderful about it. I, I love hearing everyone else's words is like I, I love writing but I also I've always loved reading and I love hearing spoken word like I love when people read their pieces I'm mm -hmm. just like yes yeah well thank you again <laughs> thank you Hannah and I have had the pleasure through the years of knowing another adoptee Patrick McMahon, who can be heard on episode 81 of season 5. 
If you haven't heard from him on this podcast, I hope you will listen to his wisdom and the contributions he's making to our community. Hannah and I were destined to meet and get to know each other better when she joined cohorts of the Adoptee Voices Writing Group created by Sarah Easterly. When I first read Hannah's piece, Q the Sun, published in Severance Magazine, I found myself getting emotional. A line she wrote, We adoptees knew only what our new parents told us, reminds me of being under a closed system when adoptees from that era were subject to untruthful, limited, or no information at all about our beginnings. She put words to many feelings that I have felt for years and in recent times. I'm always amazed at how much I learn from a guest or another adoptee when I least expect it, no matter where we are on our personal journey. It often makes me emotional and feel a scar healing from a wound. I'm happy that Hannah made the beautiful decision to pursue a lifelong love to write. I'm equally thrilled that she has taken on the challenge of writing about the bigness of how relinquishment and adoption has left its impact on her in an effort to help herself and other adoptees. Finding a birth mother's grave requires a level of acceptance I know all too well because some questions can only be answered by a third party known in a court of law as hearsay evidence and inadmissible. And then many other questions will never receive an answer. Hannah learning of her birth mother living only two blocks away from her before Illinois changed its adoption laws, which prevented a possible reunion before her death, is heartbreaking. Is there a better reason for all states to give adoptees their original birth certificates before it's too late? Thank you, Hannah, for having this conversation with me. The unfolding of your journey with the synchronicities that you uncovered make me think about how precious it is to listen to our inner voice and follow our passion, which is often the best guidance. You being drawn to the West Coast and moving there, where your birth mother was living for years, unbeknownst to you, I don't believe was happenstance. You were positioning yourself to know more to your truths. I appreciate you reading your pieces for my audience. You gave us a generous gift of a glimpse into your perspective and how you are putting the emotional pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S, together for peace, P-E-A-C-E. I more than suspect that you, me, and at least one other adoptee listening here breathe a sigh of relief when we consider the power of writing and reading to heal those distressing parts of our lived experience. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGolston.com. Thank you so much for being here.